Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I want to take a look at a conservative civil war that has been raging inside conservatism now for, well, one could say a couple of weeks or months, but in reality goes back to the massive implosion that took place with the election of President Donald Trump. Uh, Because as anybody who follows politics knows, uh, President Donald Trump was, as Conrad Black said on this show a few weeks back, a president like no other. Uh, But before that, he was a candidate like no other. The 2016 election primary field was crowded uh, with a sort of who's who of conservative governors and senators and luminaries, all of whom wanted a shot at securing the presidential nomination. And instead, you had this Manhattan billionaire smash his way through a lineup of Republican all-stars, secure the nomination, and then crush Hillary Clinton for the presidency of the United States. We don't know exactly what this is going to mean in the long term yet, but what we do know is that conservatism has changed. Or at least what we know is that the assumptions of conservatism have changed. Some people say Trump was just a one-off phenomenon that took place due to a convergence of dissatisfaction among a wide variety of voting blocs and a historically terrible candidate from the Democrats, uh, one Hillary Clinton. But there's been a conservative civil war going on between the classical liberal camp, who essentially still thinks that 1980s Reagan conservatism Uh, works in a culture war atmosphere where the left is playing for keeps, where gay marriage has become legalized, where LGBT activists are gunning for every gay baker and photographer that they can, as we discussed on last week's podcast, and in an era where it's rapidly looking like a zero-sum game and civil war is openly discussed on shows like uh, HBO's uh, Bill Maher. In that atmosphere now, we're having a debate between people like Sorab Amari, who writes for the New York Post and First Things, and David French of the National Review. And when I say it's between two people like that, uh, the reason for this is because Sorab Amari, who I've interviewed before, he's a very talented writer, uh, recently wrote a biography, writes regularly for the New York Post for First Things, uh, for the Catholic Herald in the United Kingdom. And he has increasingly become a hardcore traditionalist who sees classical liberalism as insufficient to meeting the demands of a new era. And he was one of a long list of conservative commentators who signed a sort of manifesto published by the uh, Journal of Religion and Public Policy First Things. And that manifesto, for anybody who wants to Google it, is simply called Against the Dead Consensus. And they make the case in that manifesto that conservatism, uh, the sort of neoconservatism hawkish attitude towards foreign policy, which was proven to have uh, failed, they said, due to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan ending in disaster, as well as a sort of hands-off approach to the free market. They said, look, Conservatism is dead in the age of Trump. It's time to rebuild it. Let's abandon these ideas that haven't worked for us. And Sorab Amari essentially called what he sort of saw as an insufficient response to the culture war that we are currently engaged in with the left as David Frenchism. Now, David French is a Iraq veteran. He was a long-standing lawyer for Alliance Defending Freedom. I think he's sued more universities than any living American, and he has a very long and distinguished record of fighting for freedom of speech in the public square. Uh, and so because of the different hats that he's worn, because of the fact that he's very much a, a Bush Republican, he'll still defend the war in Iraq. He uh, is very much a fan of classical liberalism. And he works uh, for the National Review, which is known as the Never Trump magazine leading up to the presidential election of 2016. And so Sorab Amari essentially has uh, saddled classical liberalism with the title of David Frenchism and claimed that they simply weren't fighting hard enough to preserve 
Christians in the culture war. And since that exchange, which started on Twitter and then ended with Sorab Amari writing a column called Against David Frenchism, again, if you want to read that, it's on First Things, basically every conservative commentator in the punditocracy has weighed in. Ross Douthat has weighed in in the New York Times. Uh, conservative commentators over at The Atlantic and The Washington Post have weighed in. Pretty much everybody who can still uh, hoist a keyboard over at National Review has responded. And they're basically arguing back and forth as to what conservatives and what social conservatives specifically should be doing in these culture wars and whether or not uh, classical liberalism and the ideologies of the past are sufficient to meet the challenges ahead of us. And in short, if they are sufficient uh, to meet an enemy that wants to destroy us. And so Rabbi Mary is one major uh, the, the example he constantly points to is Brett Kavanaugh. He says, look at Brett Kavanaugh. They'll accuse you of rape. They will destroy your life to hang on to illegal abortion and to take over in the culture. They don't play by morals, and we should stop pretending that civic virtue is so important in our war with the left. And so in order to uh, discuss this, because this is a theme we're going to be discussing on a little bit more uh, over the next couple of months. I'm going to have more people who are taking a look at what conservatism might look like post-Trump. It's an extremely relevant question for anybody listening to this podcast because what we're really talking about is the future of the pro-life movement. We're talking about the future of religious liberty. We're talking about whether or not traditionalist Christians can survive in a culture where the left actually and actively wants them destroyed. So it's a very important discussion to be having. And this conservative civil war is extremely essential for a bunch of reasons. And so for the first conversation of several on this issue, I asked John Zmirak to come and join me and try to make sense of some of this. He is the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Catholicism. He has his BA from Yale University and MFA in screenwriting and fiction and his PhD in English from Louisiana State University. Uh, he has been a press secretary to pro-life Louisiana Governor Mike Foster. He's written for First Things, The Weekly Standard, The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, USA Today, Front, pa- Front Page Magazine, The American Conservative, The South Carolina Review, Modern Age, The Intercollegiate Review, Commonweal, The National Catholic Register, and more. He writes daily at the stream.org where he has fascinating insights into the culture wars. The stream.org. I'd encourage any of you who want to keep up with the culture wars to go and check that out. And without any further introduction from me, here is my conversation with John Smirak. Well, John, my first question is, could you sort of summarize the uh, internecine conservative civil war that's currently underway so our listeners who don't have time to spend, you know, eight hours a day on Twitter or catching up on the most recent columns can have an understanding of what this discussion is all about? Okay, yeah. And, you know, I'd like to first say what it, what it, what it seems to be on the surface, what, okay. what the official battle is, and then what I think is really going on, and they're, they're somewhat different. On the surface, this is a battle between uh, defenders of small government, free market, and classical liberalism on the one side, which is where David French has positioned himself, and the common good, Christian culture, and nationalism, populism, and Trump on the other side, which is where Saurabh Amari has positioned himself. So on the surface, this is a reflection of the battle in the Republican Party over Donald Trump storming in and gaining the high ground and taking the, the GOP away from where it was under George W. Bush and John McCain and Mitt Romney. Now, where was it under those people? Yeah. I would say where it was, it would sort of make a token a token gesture of support for a weak version of the pro-life cause or the pro-family cause. And then as soon as it, it became costly, quickly abandon it. Um, you'll notice that, you know, everybody, almost everybody on the right in the establishment Republicans has given up on reversing same-sex marriage. They, they, they're squishy on abortion. You know, they'll, they'll talk a good game, but they also won't do anything. Like Nikki Haley is now accepting awards from pro-life groups 
But if you asked uh, St- Stefano Gennarini, who, who worked at the UN when she was our UN, UN ambassador, she never lifted a finger for the pro-life cause while she actually had the power to do something. Right. She focused on other stuff. But now that she's out of office and hoping to run for president, um, I call her Jeb Bush in a dress, uh, she is waving the pro-family flag, but she really wouldn't, didn't do a damn thing when she had the ability to do anything. That was the GOP before Donald Trump. It pretended to be really free market, but it would get squishy. It wouldn't fight the left. You know, it, did, it didn't fight like uh, massive anti-discrimination things that, that, re- that weren't really about discrimination at all. They were based on disparate impact, for instance, like uh, female firefighters who couldn't pass the physical test. That's suddenly discrimination. Right. Uh, and so you have to get rid of the phys- physical tests for firemen. You, it, the, the, neo, the neocons, the neoconservatives, opportunistically trotted out the free market and classical liberalism when it suited them. But when somebody like Ron Paul, who is a genuine libertarian, when he criticized the Republican Party for their crony capitalism, for their militarism and interventionism abroad, they mocked him ruthlessly. I'll never forget in 2008 when Ron Paul was running for president, Jonah Goldberg was in charge of the debate between all, among all the Republican candidates, including Ron Paul. And when Ron Paul would speak, Jonah Goldberg just laughed into the microphone, and you couldn't even hear him. He was mocking him as if he were some meaningless, crazy old man. That is the neocon. Right. They will use a principle opportunistically as long as it suits them, and then they'll drop it. It'll fold like a cheap tent the moment it gets in the way of maintaining respectability with their left-wing friends in Park Slope and Adams Market. Right. In other words, to to, to give a a concrete example of somebody who's who's really disappointed me, um, it would be somebody like David Frum, who wrote a brilliant book on on, on the seventies and how that decade transformed America. Uh, he wrote he he wrote re- genuinely searing columns on issues like abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, and now he seems to 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 care nothing for those issues at all because he's genuinely more concerned about how Trump appears to the world due to the buffoonish aspect of the presidency more than he cares about, you know, genuine dead babies and actual dumpsters. Oh, yeah, and really what David Frum cares about is David Frum, and he wants to get published in The Atlantic, and he wants to get published in The New Yorker. And since he's not if, – if the Republicans aren't going to hire him as a presidential speechwriter, he's going to become their enemy. That is the classic neocon thing, and and I think that – all, and I mean to say all, of the supposed Christian outrage over Donald Trump and all of this never-Trump Christian prissiness over Donald Trump, it is all a tantrum by the neocons about losing control of the Xerox machines at the GOP headquarters. They lost control of the party, and people like William Crystal are willing to blow up the party and see the Democrats win for the next eight years and appoint everyone, every new justice to the Supreme Court, keep abortion legal forever, introduce polygamy, open the borders to Islam, whatever it takes, but he is going to get back that Xerox machine from Donald Trump. So what what is this debate about? So just to summarize for some of our viewers, right, so Rob Omari wrote... All right, let me make it concrete. Let me make it concrete, okay? Because on this concrete issue, I agree with Saurabh Omari. Talk about the Internet, okay? The Internet is is... Prove that social media is really showing itself to be a brutal cartel aimed at destroying Christians, conservatives, gun owners, patriotic Americans. For instance, yesterday we found, uh, Project Veritas, which is run by James O'Keefe, reveals that Pinterest has has banned the pro-life group Live Action and has designated their materials as pornography. He does an expose revealing that. Today, Twitter bans Project Veritas. This is a cartel of leftists in the private sector where they're not covered by the First Amendment, using corporate power to censor us. You see the way these CEOs demanding the state of Georgia repeal its abortion law, threatening to boycott the state, threatening to bankrupt it? This is corporate power. Outside the realm of democratic politics, being wielded by the radical left to persecute Christianity and 
attack unborn children. David French looks at all that and says, well, that's the free market. There's nothing we can do. To which I say, oh, right, David? Well, you support the Civil Rights Act, don't you? You support all this anti-discrimination law. That goes against the free market. That is a massive government intervention in the market. You don't want to repeal that. So you're not actually a principled libertarian. You're not actually fighting for the absolute free market. You, you are selectively choosing areas where you'll let the left use the government against us. But when we try to democratically use the government to defend ourselves, all of a sudden you become a pure principled libertarian. So I've got a piece at, at, at stream.org, David French versus the Civil Rights Act, showing that David French's arguments, if you applied them, would mean repealing the Civil Rights Act. Now, Sarah Bamari and the people, some of the people at First Things and people at Human Events, a terrific new magazine everyone should be reading, uh, those of us at stream.org, we think the government has a role in protecting free speech on social media. Specifically, a lot of us want an online Civil Rights Act of 2019, which says you can no more ban Christians or conservatives from Facebook or Twitter than you can, than you can ban blacks or Jews or Muslims. And this should be a civil right which is enforceable in court with a civil tort. You should be able to go to a judge and say, look, they, 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 they took down all my sermons that I preached at my church because they don't agree with my Christian views. And the judge should be able to say, yep, that was wrong. YouTube, you have to undo that. So we've got the two sides here, the, 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 the supporters of, of classical liberalism, as you've described it, the system that we've been, we've been operating in uh, for several decades. And then we have on the other side, the Sol Rabo Mary side, which would include uh, himself, Tucker Carlson, uh, and then a, a wide cast of characters that we can, we can get into later. I, I think uh, Ross yeah. do that at the New York Times would also be more or less in I that camp. I don't know. Ross is a never, Ross is a never Trumper. I mean, he's, he's a strange bird. Well, he wants he he basically wants Trumpism without Trump, as I understand it. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, and I would like a pony that doesn't poop. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, he wants he wants the victories of populism, but he doesn't want tacky populist tactics. I mean, remember a week before the election, Ross Douthat said in a column at the New York Times, one week before the election of a very close race. He said voting for Donald Trump was morally equivalent to shooting abortion doctors in the streets. I can send you the column. I know because he, quote, he quoted me on the opposite side in the same column. So if, if it were up to Ross Douthat, we would have President Hillary Clinton. So I'm really not that inclined to take him terribly seriously. Right. Well, I was referring to his, his more recent comments on this. Yeah, spat, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> where he seems more sympathetic to, to Mary than he does. Uh, to French's generic view. So basically, to, to sort of steel man what the discussion is, because you take a middle-of-the-road approach, which is why I really want to get your take on this. Yeah, is I it, kind of uh, pox on both their houses. <laughs> yeah, so we've got the classical liberals um, who basically say, look, we've got the left and the right, and we're holding, we're each upholding one end of the public square. The public square is where we enter the ring, and we try to persuade people to come over to our side of the fence on abortion or marriage or tariffs or, well, or immigration or, is, or what I, have I you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them classical liberals. That's the flag they're flying under. They are the neocons. These are the neoconservatives. They are not consistent libertarians like Tom Woods, okay, or Ron Paul, or Jeffrey Tucker. No, the, these are the neoconservatives, which means they use classical liberalism when it suits them, and then they drop it when it doesn't. Okay, I, I actually am div I like the principles of classical liberalism. If you wanted actual, real freedom of contract and freedom of association, and to take away the government intervening anywhere in the process, that would be a very different result from what we have now. What we have now is the left is allowed to use the levers of government to promote its agenda. And, but when the right tries to do that, all of a sudden it's a terrible disgrace. It's a terrible hypocrisy for us to do that. And that is basically like taking a rubber chicken to a gunfight. Well, so basically 
the tactical fight between French and Amerigo, which is what, what I'm trying to get to, this idea that yeah. the public okay. square is open to all of us. Um, you've got the left upholding one side, the right upholding the other side, the right being this sort of, you know, very loose coalition of all of the different groups we've been discussing. Uh, you know, the left being, well, an extremely radical group, especially if you look at the uh, the, the, yeah. the platforms of the presidential candidates. But my understanding was that so Rob O'Mary and Rod Dreher and the people that are all on that side say, look, the reason this isn't working out is because only one side is upholding the deal. Uh, only one right. side is saying, uh, let's uphold free speech for everybody because we're persuaded that, for example, uh, we can convince a lot of Americans to be pro-life, which every poll says the pro-life movement's done a bang-up job of doing for almost 50 years now. Um, and so if we can keep the public square open, um, then this is all going to work out. Meanwhile, the left is saying, well, actually, we want to restrict your access to the public square. We saw presidential candidate Kirsten Gillibrand actually comparing being pro-life to being a racist, which is beginning to lay the groundwork for banning certain types of speech. Exactly. As you already mentioned, you've got social media, which is is basically trying to ensure that a Brexit, Trump, you name it, could never happen again, which is why they, they, they basically used the Irish abortion referendum as their test case for keeping messages that they didn't like yeah. away from the voters. And so right. um, my understanding is that French says, look, things aren't going that great, uh, but this is the only system that can protect uh, Christians and social conservatives. So Rob O'Mary is saying, uh, you're full of it, and we need to use the power of the state uh, to smash the corporations and to smash those forces that are seeking to harm us. So what's your take on, on that analysis? In that argument, in, that ar- in the argument as you framed it, I agree 100% with Sarah Bamari. Okay. Okay. My criticism of Amari and First Things is that a lot of the people they're gathering in their coalition aren't really devoted to America or to capitalism uh, or, or to our system. I mean, it, it, there was this manifesto published at First Things against the dead consensus. Yes, and, I liked it. Uh, and it was, I liked it too. But then I read the people signing it. One of them, Patrick Deneen, believes that America was founded on evil philosophical principles, that our Constitution really does support abortion and gay marriage, that we're a fundamentally flawed country, and that it's not going to be a safe place for Christians until the system collapses, and it is replaced by some kind of official Christian state from the rubble. Another of the signers, Matthew Walter, thinks that Catholics and Protestants shouldn't even cooperate in politics that we need to try to impose Catholic social teaching on the entire country. This even though Catholics voted for Obama, and, and we can barely rely on the Vatican to, to produce Orthodox documents, but somehow we're going to, the Catholics, we Catholics are going to uh, create a Catholic state here in America. Uh, and another of the signers, Matthew Schmitz, is a socialist, open socialist. He believes in socialism, which was condemned by, I think, 10 votes, one after another. So I, I'm, I'm upset that some people at First Things, who I regard as oddball cranks, are trying to grab Donald Trump's flag, grab Tucker Carlson's flag, and say, yeah, yeah, that's us. Yeah, we're, uh, we're the Trump guys. So I, in other words, I, I see deep problems with the neocons at National Review and deep problems with what I call the theocrats and socialists over at First Things. Well, so do you think they're trying to grab onto the Trump train, or do you think they just see him as yes. a wrecking ball? And they, they like, or is this an argument about like, look, Trump has smashed the system. What is going to come into its place? Um, because I, I, there's a difference between seeing him as a transformative figure and seeing him as somebody who's created a vacuum that is now empty, and that's why you know people with their crazy ideas who otherwise would have you know worked for interesting think tanks and and written interesting columns that a limited number of people would have found interesting now are saying, hey, look, if there's a vacuum, I've got some great ideas that I've been sitting on for a while, um, and let's give this a shot. Maybe so, but I would not say that anti-Americanism or socialism or Catholic theocracy are great ideas. Or, and I don't think any of them have a f- future in America. So I'm all for what Saurav Amari is saying. I'm not for what some of his colleagues at First Things are saying. I, I've, in a column I wrote, I compared them to, you know, in the 20s and 30s, you would have civil rights activists complaining about Jim Crow and who would come out of the woodwork to sign their, their, their manifestos but the communist front groups who didn't really care that much about civil rights, but they saw this as a good opportunity to promote 
their alien political agenda. And I think some of that's happening at first things. So here's another thing that that's, that's sort of difficult to work through, because I think the reason for Sorab's outrage in his column, uh, which is what triggered this 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 sort of conservative civil war in the first place, was that he was genuinely offended that somebody like David French, who has sued more universities than any living American, right? And like the guy's got uh, you know his 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 Purple Hearts and his awards and the Culture Wars. Um, because he he has actually you know put his money where his mouth is and done the heavy lifting and the hard work of actually trying to ensure that the public square stays open uh, to his side, um, but it was the fact that in his worldview uh, that the right to free speech applies equally to drag queen story time as it does to a pastor you know articulating the traditionalist view of marriage, uh, right, which he's. Right. That is- which is what started the whole thing. Yeah, well, well but that's what started right, the okay. whole thing. And and and, and French right. has already agreed publicly on Twitter with uh, with Mary's analysis that he is okay with drag queen story time. So this is where you come right down the middle between the All two right, of them. Here's what where we solution? have to draw the line. Here's where we have to draw the line. We don't say, yeah, as Catholics we want an officially Catholic state, or as Baptists we want an officially Baptist state. We don't try to impose divine revelation on people who might not have received the supernatural grace to believe it. Okay, that's theocracy. But we can impose the natural law. The natural law is written on the human heart. Every human being could understand the natural law, and if he were honest, would come to agree with it. That's what we believe as as Catholics. That's what Jews believe. That's what most Protestants believe. The natural law, much of which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, but there's more to it than that. But protecting innocent children from being, being indoctrinated by sex perverts, that is not something you need to believe in the apparitions of Fatima. To, hold, to agree with. Right. You don't have to believe in Jesus' divinity. So in st- what I think the middle ground and what I try to promote in my, in my piece at, at stream.org, it's called uh, The Church Needs the Winsome and the Winners. Okay. In that piece, I said, yes, we should use the tools of the government to promote our views. Yes, we should try to impose a certain moral orthodoxy on America and not just fight for empty procedural norms like classical liberalism. But, but, we stop at natural law, protecting unborn children, defending marriage, opposing adultery, opposing sexual perversion in the public square. All those things which are natural law principles that any reasonable person can and should agree with, that we can argue for. We don't have to cite the New Testament. We don't have to cite the Old Testament. We don't have to cite papal encyclicals. We look at nature and, and creation and, and biology and, and tradition, all those things which are legitimate for, a, for Justice Scalia to cite them in a Supreme Court opinion. Those are the arguments we make, and we agree to disagree on theological points like the infallibility of the Pope. So... What do you make of the argument that a lot of people, uh, like, like, let's go back to to, to Ross, do that for a minute, would say, like, look, Trump smashed the system and we need a, we need, well, and, and Tucker Carlson essentially in his book, Ship of Fools, calls Trump a symptom, uh, not, necessarily the, not necessarily the solution, but the symptom. So what you're articulating, uh, this idea that we need to pull back to, to natural law and that that's a, a common ground as opposed to a common good that we can operate from in some fashion. What do you say to the criticism um, that Trump, because he's been an adulterous narcissist um, and has never denied that, right? He brags about that in, in his book, um, um, The Art of the Deal, and, and his other books as well, um, which, which I'm sure you've read. What do you say that, uh, to the criticism that he's not an adequate uh, avatar for these sorts of values? I would say, first of all, we're all sinners. Nobody's an adequate avatar unless Jesus is running. Secondly, I would say, well, Constantine, who saved the church from vicious persecution and helped to make the church dominant in Europe, probably saved hundreds of millions of souls. You know, he was no, he was no saint. He murdered his wife. He murdered his son. He he committed persecutions. You know, I mean, we we. We are in a fallen world, and we work with imperfect instruments, including ourselves. Um, 
think about this. Cardinal Spellman built hundreds of churches in New York. He was re- largely responsible for the Religious Liberty Declaration at Vatican II. Now we find he also led a double life and was uh, consorting with male prostitutes in New York City. That doesn't undo all the good he did. It doesn't mean we have to go tear down those churches or rip up Vatican II. Donald Trump is, is an imperfect instrument. So was George W. Bush. I mean, look at this. The neocons who loved George W. Bush, people like David French who adored him, and they probably have keep relics of him at their house. George W. Bush sat by while three-quarters of a million Christians were driven out of Iraq while our troops were there. Our troops were there and could have protected them, didn't protect them. Almost three-quarters of, of an ancient apostolic Christian community in Iraq was driven out while American troops looked on, stood by, and did nothing because the president didn't tell them to. As far as I'm concerned, I'm a lot more offended by George W. Bush than I am by Donald Trump saying some profane things on the Howard Stern show. Right, but what they would say you're you're, compla- you're conflating policy bumbling with you know fundamental character. You're basically saying Trump. I I think policy bumbling is a lot more important. <laughs> Letting true. A, almost a million Christians be ethnically cleansed is a lot more important than the president's long ago sexual dalliances. If you can't see that, I I don't believe them that they can't see that. I think it's just a neocon tantrum. I do not believe these people when they say that they are too outraged by Donald Trump's moral character. I don't think I don't think they're telling the truth. Okay, well, I'll give you an example that I think that's, that's more typical of somebody that, that you're close friends with, so you'll know he's serious. Prior to Cruz losing Indiana, um, Eric Metaxas basically said that Trump's character proved that he was unfit for the office um, and, and basically cited all the things that the neocons did, but then just changed his position when it was him or Hillary. So you could. I thought that I was the same way. I supported Cruz through the convention. But I think Donald Trump in office has, has shown us a very different face. I think if we look at what he's done in office, the worst thing that people can say is, oh, he did some intemperate tweets. They weren't <laughs> winsome. A big effing deal. I'm sorry. That's ridiculous. Donald Trump has, done, has been the most pro-life president since Ronald Reagan. He's, de- he's defended religious liberty. He's, I'll tell you who's ha- who was really happy when Donald Trump got elected, Middle Eastern Christians. My, my, my friend Jason Jones was in a Kurdish camp when the election was announced. And the Kurds and Christians there were screaming and yelling and doing victory dances at the victory of Donald Trump. And I know for a fact Donald Trump protected the Syrian Christians from attacks by Turkey. And he did that at the request of Christian pastors. Donald Trump listens to the religious right more than any president since Reagan, maybe more than Reagan. And part of the reason for that, I'll, I'll admit, is that Donald Trump is isolated in the Republican Party. Most of the traditional power centers in the Republican Party wanted nothing to do with him. The religious rights stepped up and offered him support and offered him advice and counsel, and he still takes their advice, support, and counsel. So we Christians have more influence at the White House than we have had since 1980. And so why do you think, because somebody like a David French, for example, and I will say that this genuinely does confuse me because I was... I, I said that everything that I wrote about Donald Trump prior to the election, I take none of it back except for one thing that I said, which is I I completely disbelieved that he would do anything pro-life based on the fact that he couldn't even articulate the pro-life movement's positions very well in front of microphones. He wouldn't say if he'd ever right. paid for one, that sort of thing. Um, and so I wanted I wanted him to be president over Hillary Clinton, but I, I genuinely did not think that he would do any of the things that he did. And I think one of the reasons for that is because the day after his inauguration, um, Planned Parenthood marshaled the full forces of feminism to scream uh, profanities at him over the White House fence and did the pro-life movement the biggest favor they possibly could have uh, by ensuring yeah. that Trump would never, ever, ever side with them because Trump only knows how to do one thing when spoken to like that, which is to hit back twice as hard. So I think Cecile yeah, Richards... that's what we need, by the way. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think Cecile Richards did us a pretty big favor. And so I have I have begrudgingly but increasingly um, been pretty enthusiastic about the things that, uh, that not only has he done, but appears willing to do. I think one of the only things that might save religious liberty is if Trump turns out to be willing to veto the Equality Act, which we desperately need yeah. to happen. 
Um, Absolutely, and I think he will, because Donald Trump actually listens, and members of his family actually listen to Christian right pastors who call him up and talk to him. He listens to them. You know who didn't? George W. Bush. So why would somebody uh, like like David French, who is a genuine, sincere evangelical, um, not see this? Like I, I understand why people like Jonah Goldberg and stuff don't, uh, because to be completely blunt, they are supportive of religious liberty, but it is an abstract concept because they're not Christians themselves. So I can't expect them to have the same level of understanding of the issues that matter to us. For us, these are existential issues, not aspirational issues. Um, which is it was a fundamental difference. But why would somebody like French not understand what Amari is saying in regards to the Trump administration essentially uh, having at least pressed the pause button on a lot of the stuff that's coming? Uh, Rod Dreher makes that point. Um, well, he had to go back and rewrite sections of the Benedict Option. But he says, look, uh, the, the Trump administration has given us a reprieve um, and, and time right. to prepare and one of the things, of course, would be to um, strengthen conscience protections, uh, to appoint justices. I think he's flipped three circuit courts um, and is on right. track to do it for a fourth. That's going to last. Yeah. That's going to last thirty years. Um, that's right. So why why can't they see it? That that part um, I don't completely understand. I, I can't give you an intellectual reason. I think it goes, to, uh, frankly, to character flaws. I think it's personal. I think. The people who are the loud, never-Trump Christians were all completely tied up in the, in the Bush administration and its policies, in the old Republican Party, in its money going around behind the scenes. They're all friends with William Crystal. He gave them jobs. He gave them book grants. I, I, I cannot think of a genuine principled reason or any excuse even to be a never-Trumper at this point, given the way Trump has, has behaved in office. Uh, and so I, I think we have, to, you have to ask their spiritual director, because I just don't think there is a respectable reason that can be defended, honestly. So let's take a look at, at tangible policy things, because I thought the, when I saw Sol Ribomeri's um, Against David Frenchism column that first detailed what his problems uh, with, with David French and, and the classical liberals and the neocons was, um, I think the one response that I had the most sympathy for was, what do you want specifically? Um, like, what are, what are tangible policy solutions uh, that can be utilized, especially now um, in the last year of Trump's presidency and then uh, hopefully if he, if he wins his second term, uh, which is up in the air, but it's his to lose as long as he sits at 50%. Um, how, uh, what's, what sort of policy would satisfy the Sora Ameri crowd? And, and, and I ask that as well because I, I read through uh, uh, Tucker Carlson's book, Ship of Fools. I reviewed it extensively. Um, and, but, but even in his lectures on the book, he's basically said, like, look, Trump's a symptom. I see what the problem is. I don't have a lot of solutions. Um, and so Tucker, I think, has, has been a great diagnostician on this issue, but hasn't actually explained what the government could do to ensure uh, that Christians maintain more liberty and safety in, in the decades to come. Okay, well, um, first of all, we need to fix, to fix immigration. Nothing, nothing we do now matters at all if one state or if, uh, after another flips from red to blue because of immigration. So immigration is the be-all and end-all issue. As I, as I said at the stream, Im- immigration determines whether America will be saved. Abortion determines whether it deserves to be saved. But the pro-life issue is going to go nowhere if Texas flips blue, okay, if, if, if Oklahoma flips blue. So first and foremost, we have to close the borders. We have to stop almost a million low-skill immigrants coming into America every year to an economy that doesn't need low-skill workers. So those people are headed straight for Democrat-funded welfare programs, and they are natural Democrat voters. And our bishops are doing absolutely nothing to catechize them on the pro-life issue. What our bishops are doing is cashing federal checks. They, they are they are 40% of the U.S. Catholic Conference's budget last year came from federal non-profit contracts, most of it serving immigrants. And that's why our bishops care far more about immigration than they do about unborn children. 
because it's their financial bottom line. So first and foremost, we have to fix immigration. That will also help us with blue-collar workers, with blacks and Hispanics, whose wages will go up when they're not constantly being undercut by the latest person who came in from Guatemala who's willing to work for $2 an hour. So immigration, immigration, immigration. Veto the Equality Act. Right. Make sure that the next Supreme Court justice is more solid than Kavanaugh. Okay. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking someone like Sid, I would like to see somebody like Sidney Powell appointed, um, a conservative evangelical. There is not an evangelical on the court. I think that's kind of crazy. I think it's time to get a conservative evangelical on the court. Um, Second Amendment. Absolutely have to have to expand and extend our Second Amendment rights. So far, the Democrats, every time they try to attack gun rights, they lose huge at the ballot box. So that's a winning issue for us. We need to make that more front and center uh, on the rights of Americans to defend themselves and and to have a backstop against tyranny. Um, continue to push on pro-life issues. Continue to hold the line on on the LGBT stuff. I, I it's we can't cave. We can't normalize that activity. We can't accept uh, Obergefell. We cannot accept that court decision because as Justice Roberts, hardly a bomb throwing right winger, Justice Roberts said that this decision puts the court on the track to say that Orthodox Christianity is against the public interest. That the public interest is to promote full and equal dignity for homosexuals, and any church that opposes that is fundamentally at odds with the public interest and therefore might see its First Amendment liberties restricted. The way the Mormons couldn't practice polygamy, so they had to give it up. That's what the left sees. That's what people like Pete Buttigieg see, that if they make if they make it a hill to die on, if they say you can't have your churches unless they do same sex marriages that 90% of the churches will go along. And so then they'll be kind of like the patriotic church in China. They embrace the heresy and they let the government control them in return for peace, and the real Christians are underground. That's what the left has in mind for us. So what if the uh, the left, uh, like especially the, the corporations, right? This is where the interesting debate comes in and one that we should we should take, take a look at here uh, before the end of the show, which is... Um, Big government versus big corporations. One of the things that Tucker Carlson has been saying a lot is that conservatives at one point had correctly identified big government as the the, the most significant threat, uh, threat to their freedom. He says that has now shifted. Corporations, especially the Silicon Valley Corps and, uh, and, and, and businesses like Google, pose a far more significant threat to our freedom than the government does. And thus, the right should be using the government against the corporations in order to secure our freedom. What is your view on that? I agree with it as long as we control the federal government. But, uh, you know, if we lose the next election, the, le- well, the thing is, if we, if we use the power of the government to defend ourselves, that's a good thing because it's not like it's creating a precedent that the left will imitate. The left will use its power against us anyway. The left right. will use the power of government against us as soon as it gets hold of that power. They will not be constrained by the fact that, oh, David French didn't do that when he had the power, so now we won't because we're playing by Marquess of Queensbury rules. These people hate us. They hate us. They think we're all Nazis. It doesn't matter what precedents, what norms we uphold. They're all going to go in the shredder. These people hate us and they want to destroy us. What we need to see is we are not in 1968 where the Democratic and the Republican Party were both patriotic mainstream parties that disagreed about policy. We're in something much more like Spain in the 30s where the Spanish Republic wanted to obliterate Christianity and half of them wanted to impose communism. That's the situation now. We, the left has so radicalized itself there is no area of compromise. There is no common ground. We just have to defeat these people. And, and we need to do whatever it takes that doesn't violate the moral law to defeat these people because they want to destroy us. So what Rod Dreher says in response to the whole argument is that he's more or less on Sorab Omari's side, but that he doesn't see a way victory is possible because there simply isn't enough of us 
and we don't control enough of the levers of power. We might temporarily have government, but we don't have the entertainment industry. We don't have the corporations. Um, we we don't yeah, have... Yeah, Rod is a defeatist. Rod is a defeatist. His whole book, The Benedict Option, was about let's go climb in a hole and hope they don't persecute us. Two days at one week after Obergefell got decided, he wrote in Newsweek how we had to stop voting Republican. We had to give up on politics. So I'm sorry. I think I think it's in Rod's interest promoting his Benedict Option to say that victory is impossible. So I'm just not going to listen to him. You know, I was I was promoting pro-life stuff and and writing pro-life columns and fight, fighting the gay lobby. In 1989 at LSU, at the same school, when Rod was a left-wing journalist, so I've been at this a lot longer than Rod. And uh, vict- victory is possible. Total victory is not possible, but we we can we can peel back these things. I I think, for instance, on the abortion issue, we can realistically hope in in our lifetime to pass a law protecting unborn children from the first heartbeat or the first brainwave. I think that the lot there's a logic to that that will appeal to people. If if we define death as the end of brain waves, it makes sense to defend to de, to define life as the beginning of brain waves. And no, that's not perfect. You and I believe that life begins at conception. Right. But it's a huge, huge, huge improvement. I mean, think about what happened with slavery. The abolitionists got rid of slavery, but it was followed by Jim Crow. For a hundred years, blacks were denied their full civil rights, but they weren't slaves anymore. I think we're going to see something like that with abortion, where it's far, the outcome is far from perfect, but at least we won't have the worst abortion laws on the face of the earth except for China, North Korea, and Canada. You know, we, we, if we can push back to where there is no, essentially no surgical abortion, everything has to happen before the, the eighth week when is – it, is it the eighth or the tenth week when brainwaves begin – that would be a huge, huge political victory, a moral victory, and uh, I think it's I think it's doable in our lifetime. So you are are substantially more optimistic than any of the people that are currently having this debate, if I understand you correctly. Um, I'm hopeful because I I think God is still involved in this. I don't think God has given up on America. I I don't think that for all the babies we've killed and all the things we've done wrong. I don't think God has withdrawn his protection from America completely. I mean, you don't even have a pro-life movement in most Western European countries of any size. You know, it's not even a debate in those countries. Ireland was the last country where it was even a debate. It's just taken for granted. In Italy, a mile away from the Pope's palace, it's, the abortion is not even on the table in those countries. At least here, half the population is concerned about it. Half the population is on our side. Our, a lot of our people are devoted to private firearms. We're not going to be disarmed timidly. We're not going to turn in our guns the way the Australians did. There are a lot of leftover things that are great about America that come from the American founding. But if, like Rod Dreher and Patrick Deneen, you think the American founding was a bad idea, you're going to be pessimistic. You're going to be hopeless. So this is basically rooted in your view of America's founding and whether or not in the American founding the principles that can carry us through our present difficulties exist or not. And not just in the de- the documents, like the Declaration and the Constitution, but in the culture we come from. The old Anglo-American culture of loving freedom and reading the Bible and being suspicious of tyranny and being devoted to your church and your family, we have more of that surviving culturally than these other countries. Just the way the Poles have a powerful culture that helped them endure communism, that I hope now can help them survive prosperity and modernity. So it's something about the Anglo-American culture, the people who came over here and the, the communities that they founded. It's not just the documents or the intellectual principles. It's the culture. Because, you know, when, they, when, when Mexico became independent, when Venezuela became independent, they adopted constitutions very much like ours. But their cultures couldn't sustain them. I think there's enough about our culture that gives me some reason for hope that... Ordered liberty, 
rights for individual citizens, a defense of the natural law, these things are still possible here in America. And anyone who's telling you they aren't is looking for an excuse to do nothing, to climb into a bunker and reread Dante and wait for the end. Well, I'm not willing to go that quietly. Well, I guess for a final question, then, what what would your predictions look like? We've got an election coming up. Um, it's sort of like the Chinese blessing and a curse wrapped into into a single phrase, which is "May you live in interesting times." And we've we've seen things escalate in 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 an insane fashion over just like I'm only thirty years old, but I can remember when transgenderism wasn't a thing because that was like five years ago, right? Um, yeah. I only Incredible. I only graduated from university at the end of of 2010 with my degree in history, and my student union looks sane compared to the things that are happening now, which is really saying something. Um, like they're they're like our the lefties eight years ago have nothing on the lefties today. So what do you see the next four to eight years looking like? I think the left is going to get crazier and crazier, and uh, we absolutely need to win this next election. We absolutely need to fix immigration. I think if we do fix immigration, the results for the American people will be so immediate and so positive. Look at what Trump has successfully done to the economy. I think if he actually, that has strongly built his political support. I mean, the economy is thriving after eight years of stagnation under Obama. If he could also point to success on the immigration front, he kept us out of pointless wars. And again, we have to stay out of pointless wars. We can't listen to the neocons who are trying to get us to invade Venezuela or invade Iran. One foreign policy adventure like that could destroy Trump's presidency. So if, if Trump continues to be, to be America first, I think more and more normal Americans who don't want their seven-year-old read to by a drag queen in a demonic helmet – uh, who don't want their guns taken away, who don't want illegal immigrants to get sex change operations on the taxpayer's dime. Um, really, common sense is with us. We have the common sense position. We are not some fringe party, but the Democrats have ceased to be a patriotic political party. They want to open the borders. They want to abolish ICE. Half of them want to impose socialism. They are, they've become an un-American party. They represent the university professors. They represent the wealthy elites in a few coastal cities trying to impose their insane views on 200 million other people. I think if Trump gets reelected and, and fixes the immigration problem, we will see a realignment and a rebirth of, of conservative principles in America. We'll, we'll still have to keep fighting hard against companies like Google, against companies like Facebook, and I'm willing to use the power of the government within constitutional limits against these companies. Just the way if a private company were selling Ku Klux Klan hoods and crosses for people to burn, I think the government would look very carefully at them. And if they were marketing it to school children, it would stop them. I think we need to treat these sex, aggressive sexual perversions the same way. They are against the public interest in the same way that violent racism is. Well, John, thank you so much for taking uh, time to share your insights. Thank you. Please check out my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Catholicism. You bet. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with writer John Zmirak on the conservative civil war and a discussion on what our approach forward should be in these culture wars. If anybody wants to have a better idea of what's going on in these culture wars, you can take a look at the articles I cited at the beginning of this podcast. If you want other uh, updated opinion, commentary, or news, please go to LifeSite news.com and check that out past podcast news commentary anything you need to stay updated you can find it there thank you so much again for joining us this week and we do hope that you'll join us again next week